This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, I, I apologize in our recording situation here. You might be hearing some uh, space drilling while we're while we're recording this. Is that what you call that? It's what I call my dating life right now. Let's put it that way. Uh, I can't believe we let this go last week. I feel like we just blew right past it without being able to like celebrate the fact that you actually liked a movie from 1971. <laughs> You're influencing me, Kyle. You're mm. making me a better person. Oh, just thank like you so I'm much. dragging you down with me. We should we should take a look at the statistical scores on your side too. I'm pretty sure they're getting lower. Yeah, I think we're pulling each other to the middle somehow. You're getting more positive, and I'm going to become more negative over time. But how does it feel to be on on this side of the fence, though, on the positive side? It feels uh, positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice. It's uh, it's nice to just feel like I'm a part of something, you know, instead of just miserable, scowling at my TV, wondering why the fuck I'm doing this in the first place. But now I'm happy. So thanks, Kyle. Thanks, machine. Don't bring me into this. Is that why you're wearing the Santa Claus outfit right now? Yes, it is not because I'm staring into this other window Hmm. waiting for something to happen. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm Dave. And I'm the Machine. This is the podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Uh, somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the movie, The French Connection. All right, Popeye's here. Get your hands on your heads. Get off the bar and get on the wall. What's my name? Popeye Doyle. If he doesn't like you, he'll take you apart. And it's all perfectly legal because Doyle fights dirty. You want to take a ride there, fat man? And plays rough. Anybody want a milkshake? Doyle is bad news, but he's a good cop. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons at Green Girl YYC and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. But you know what, Dave? I was thinking about this. You know, this film that we're talking about this week, The French Connection, wins the Best Picture Oscar uh, at the 1971 ceremony. And, you know, this Sunday, 
wink wink this sunday when the oscars come out it looks like we like really timed this super well to coincide with like the 50th anniversary of the awards go minari but i thought maybe what we could do because it's such a monumental film is to bring on a guest to maybe discuss it uh from different perspectives so i wonder if alex is available here let me just call up the space phone here dial a few numbers Alex, is that you? Oh, uh, hi. Hi, who is this? Uh, th- this is Kyle and Dave. Oh, uh, wow. I, I thought we got rid of you guys. How's it going? Yeah, we've been missing for a while. I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess Earth has moved on. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're out in space here right now. We're trying to get back to Earth. I, I, I'm curious, do you have like a couple hours of uh, spare time here to talk about a film called The French Connection? Yeah, I actually have all the spare time in the world. Podcasting life. (laughs) That's great. Nothing, nothing but free time. Well, I guess we should start here then. Uh, Alex, do you have any history relationship with this movie whatsoever? Literally zero. No information going into it. Totally new. Hadn't even heard about it till you brought it up just now. Okay, so like literally had never heard about it. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the director William Friedkin at all? Nope, not at all. I'm just just curious because like his other like huge movie that would have come out a couple years after this would be The Exorcist. Have you heard about The Exorcist? I have heard of The Exorcist, yeah. Uh, Dave is probably not seeing that because it's a horror film. (laughs) Would you you describe it as head turning? I would. Like I want to spit my split pea soup everywhere. And I, I've, I've never seen The Exorcist either. I love The Exorcist. I'm just going to go on record. I think it's a great, great film. Uh, it is very horrific. Let's put, it, let's put it that way. It, it definitely lives up to its reputation in many ways. That gets us to you, Dave. Like, do you have any relationship with this movie? Oh, yeah. This used to be one of my favorites. Mm. I say used to because I can't remember the last time I actually watched it. Probably five years ago. I used to have this on a collector digital video disc, which uh, interestingly enough, I probably conmarred because I can't locate anywhere. Mm. Um, I'm a big uh, Gene Hackman fan, especially because uh, didn't he beat up some guys that tried to like, he got into an accident with on the street? He's just cool. He's like 80. <laughs> he, 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 looks like, he looks like a guy who would do that. So mm-hmm. I can believe that would happen, Dave. Yeah, we'll talk about it. And he was Lex Luthor. I don't know if Alex knows this. but I do the, know that, yeah. Yeah, the correct Superman movie. Uh, <laughs> he was Lex Luthor and uh, he's, uh, he's just great. He does uh, everything from Tannenbaum's Good. He's, he was great. Enemy of the State, the classic mm. Enemy of the State, the yeah. Will Smith Oscar winning science fiction. No, I think, I mean, I, for, I have to tell you that... Of course, my frame of reference is The Birdcage because I love that movie <laughs> so much. And he plays one of like the uh, conservative parents coming to that dinner. Of course, we have to talk about his very last film, which is Welcome to Mooseport. Because that, I'm sure, holds up 100%. Classic. Well, speaking of small towns, I, um, you know, one of his great hits. Alex, have you heard of Hoosiers? I, I've heard of the Hoosier State. Well, he made a, do we say seminal classic sports film? I think he was the first angry coach lifting up no-gooders in a sports team. He, hmm. he created that genre as far as I know. That's a good movie. He yells at a lot of people. So, if you want to see more old men yelling at boys, 
it's my that's a ticket. favorite genre is old men yelling at boys. Actually, that's how I search things on uh, on Disney Plus now. There, there is actually a section <laughs> called that on Netflix if you scroll down far enough. So probably, yeah, probably. Like I have heard of this film as I was getting more and more into like the history of film. Like I came across this as one of those films from like the early seventies that like inspired a whole bunch of people and was kind of like this watershed moment even at the Oscars because that's the movie that won is kind of not like the other movies that it went up until that point. I can recall the actual poster really well because it's of like this guy running upstairs and getting shot in the back. Like that's what the poster is. Spoiler alert for like halfway through the movie, I'm just going to tell you, but that, that, that is on the poster itself. So that was iconic here for me. But yeah, I, I know William Friedkin, the director a little bit better from like everything after this uh, of the exorcist. I guess Boys in the Band, which is another one I'm, I'm familiar with, came out like the year before this. But he still is around and he still makes movies, but they're really weird, really small budget things. One is somewhat roped into the McConaissance, if you remember that from a few years ago when Matthew McConaughey was coming back out and people mm. were like, oh, he can actually act. And he's not just this guy who takes off his shirt and stars in romantic comedies. He still takes his shirt off. Sure, but he's not starring in romantic comedies anymore. Uh, and the movie is called Killer Joe. And it, oh. it gets super weird super quickly in that movie. So if you ever want to see someone perform fellatio on a chicken wing, watch the movie Killer Joe. Because that's what happens in that movie. I'm buying the movie right now. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm excited to jump into this. Here's where I'm at. And Alex, I'm curious how you feel before we go and watch this is that I find that early crime dramas, or at least like the, the, the genre film where it's like a police detective trying to uncover a case, has to be like so good because basic, basically that trope is like every week on Law & Order or CSI <laughs> or whatever popular TV show there is out there, that if it just feels like that, it's like, well, I, like, I could see this literally every week on television in like 45 minutes. I, I, does that track for you at all, Alex? Oh, totally. Because it's, it's nothing unique, right? right. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, I've seen this one. The cops go, they do this, they catch the bad guy or they don't or this happens or that happens. There's every single procedural crime drama that's on TV, you know, running reruns four times a night uh, that you can go and find that exact same thing. So there has to be something unique or something special about it that mm -hmm. that gives it that that interest. And I mean, I'm also talking from a 2021 perspective. I don't know what it was like 50 years ago. We're about to find out. Well, we're about to find out and see, see what people say. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're about to find out. How about you, Dave? Does that track for you at all or are we being yeah. too persnickety? No, I think I mean, I think that's been a bit of a theme in this season so far, uh, going back to a time where neither of us old folks were even alive yet, never mind Alex. Uh, so many of these movies were good enough that they do become somewhat trope forming or expressions that define how we uh, see movies that inspire current filmmakers. So it is sometimes hard, has been sometimes hard to separate that and contextualize it with what the 70s were like. But as mm -hmm. we've been learning, such a tumultuous time in both yeah. uh, American, uh, American social history and in film. So well, we've seen some movies that, that have been a little bit surprising, whether I like them or not. So right. it's, mm -hmm. been, uh, it's been good. A lot of grit. It's just, it's, it's like Calgary streets. There's just, 
fucking shit and sand everywhere. It's awesome. Yeah, grit, <laughs> grit all over the place. Uh, okay, well, let's do this. Let's go thank some sponsors. And then when we all come back, we'll be talking about the French Connection. If I knew any French, that's how I would open it up. Vous, but I voulez not. Vous, yeah, I'm going to do that one. Voulez-vous avec moi? Voulez-vous avec moi? Is that how it goes? Voulez-vous conchon? That's a pig, right? Yes. See, you know some yeah. French. Lay, a- that's milk. Yeah. See, we've got a good connection going here. Cochon Co- lay, pig oh. milk. It's tart. Yum, yum, yum. A, yum, 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 yum. It's a tart milk. That's a tart lay. That's a tart milk. <laughs> a very greasy milk. Well, this is the ad section, so you sign up for this, everyone. <laughs> this is your fault. This is, this <laughs> this is, is not your us. fault. Of course, we can't start anything without letting you know that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. So this episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. I need breath control for this ad copy here, Dave. That's a callback to last week. <laughs> which happened a week Everyone ago. Wants, Great memory. Which happened, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly a week Fantastic. ago is when we recorded that ad copy. Everyone, everyone wants to feel a sense of belonging. Now, more than ever, we are united by a desire to take action and help others by creating a community built on kindness and compassion. From small creative projects to larger citizen-led initiatives, the Calgary Foundation provides grassroots grants to encourage and support people who want to create and strengthen bonds between neighbors and communities. If you've got an idea to improve, enhance, or revitalize your community or neighborhood, visit calgaryfoundation.org to find out more about the Foundation's grant opportunities and visit the Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. I feel like we should get a job writing ad copy so we can intentionally throw as many tongue twisters as possible. <laughs> as, as humanly possible. Sally sold seashells. By, by the seesaw, <laughs> which is why the Calgary Foundation <laughs> is useful for those small entrepreneurs who are looking for grants to strengthen their stranglehold on our community. So uh, Popeye Doyle told me to read this. <laughs> Great. Right? Good old Popeye. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I have the sensor button ready to go here, Dave. <laughs> hovering above fuck, it. Fuck, fuck, um, This episode is also brought to you by the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, running online this year from May 6th to the 16th. Even though Northwest Fest can't happen in a movie theater this year. Oh, I should have taken that this year before. Redundant. That's all right. Uh, okay, I'll start again. <clears throat> This ep- uh, this episode is also this is going really well. Dude. <laughs> it's all in my head now. This episode is also brought to you by the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, running online from May sixth to the sixteenth. Even though Northwest Fest can't happen in a movie theater this year, they've still put together an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs. In fact, this year there are a whopping forty feature films plus. 40 short films available for viewing to anyone in Alberta. This is your chance to stream some of the hottest new docs from Canada and abroad, many of which are Canadian, international, or even world premieres. All access streaming passes, ticket packs, and single tickets are available now at northwestfest.ca.ca. Northwest at northwestfest.ca. You know, Dave, not to make this ad section even longer, but I'm I'm just on Northwest Fest's website here right now, 
And just to pair it with the movie we're going to talk about, and you know, you might wonder, like, why would I single out this documentary? You'll you'll find out as we get into our conversation. Uh, but white noise, uh, white noise is described as as white nationalist violence surges across the world. White noise represents an urgent warning about the power of extremism and where it's going next. So maybe someone would uh, would care to watch that. <laughs> What? If you're coming here to also learn about the French connection. What is going on right now? <laughs> uh, Popeye Doyle may not be the most like woke person in the world is what I'm trying uh, listen, to say. Dave. I mean, he hates everybody, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. Let's not relitigate the conversation that we have not yet had. <laughs> I mean, who, Technically. who doesn't? No. All right. Well, let's get back to the episode. All right, well, we have now watched the movie The French Connection. Uh, we have connected via France. Alex, I guess we should start with you being our guest here this week. What do you, as our resident young person, think about the movie The French Connection? Well, I mean, to kind of distance myself from this era a little bit, even, even further, you guys mentioned that you guys weren't even born when this came out. My parents also were not born when this came out. Shut what? your mouth. What? <laughs> yeah. Is that a thing? <laughs> That's a fact. How is that possible? 72 and 73. Oh, they were just, just Alex's parents are only like six <laughs> years older than me. <laughs> so just to kind of further distance uh, myself from this, because I was watching it and I thought, oh, a, a movie. Like, I, I didn't, you know, I thought it was good, right? But I, I didn't mm -hmm. think it was, like, this amazing, right. amazing film. And I think that just goes to show, you know, the distance and, and maybe the way that storytelling and especially the way that storytelling through film has come so far and has, has changed in so many different ways. It's still a good movie, mm -hmm. but I, I wasn't watching it thinking, like, Oh, no wonder this won the Oscar. I didn't I didn't know and then I when I found out it won the Oscar, I was like, "Really?" I'm still trying to process the age of Alex's parents. We'll probably delve into that a little bit because again, you have to go back to the context of exactly. maybe why this was so revolutionary at the time. Yeah. Um this is maybe a little bit unfair because I didn't ask you to prepare for this, but I'm going to ask this to you. Can you think of the oldest film that you've seen that you would consider great? Yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed Casablanca. Uh, oh, great. Yeah. I just yeah. watched that like last week. I'm not even joking. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, I, I saw that uh, in, a, in a humanities class and I remember watching it and being like, that was awesome. And then I talked to one of my classmates and they're like, that sucked. And I was like, oh, I really enjoyed it. But okay. Did you punch them in the face? I <laughs> didn't, but mm. looking back on it now, I feel like that would have been an appropriate reaction. I wish I could have. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> or that or, you know, just steal their exit papers or something like that so that they can't leave. Yeah. Um, okay. So, that's that's where you're at. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess let me move on because I, I my sense, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, my sense is that Dave is probably going to be the most positive about this film on the podcast this week, yeah. which is an interesting place for me to be in because I'm usually the more, most positive one on this show. I, I kind of agree with you in every point, Alex, where I can look at this movie and I can recognize, oh, this is some great acting. This mm -hmm. is like an interesting story. It's some interesting camera movements that are going on. And at the very end, I was kind of just feeling underwhelmed by the whole experience. 
most because of what I set up at the beginning, which is like, there's nothing here that really elevates this to be like, well, this is like one of the best police procedurals I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Like in the intervening years, I've seen things like, uh, like heat, or I would even throw something like Zodiac or something into there where it's like these police uncovering something and trying to get to the, get to the bottom of it. And this one, I personally feel, I, I know that the movie is called The French Connection and it's about like uh, people from France coming and doing this dr- drug trafficking thing. I almost feel like that plot doesn't matter. Like it could be anything that they're going after really. Mm-hmm. And it really is just matters about like Gene Hackman on the case being so dogged that he is going to discover what's going on. Um, and that's what I was interested in. And then it kind of ends so anticlimactically for me. And I'm not even joking when he walks through a door and that's the end of the movie. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, guess we're wrapping this up. So I, I don't know. There was just, I just wanted a little bit more to it. And I had to really read up on it afterwards to be like, okay, I, I can see why people were so like enthusiastic about this film at the time it was released. I just think that it unfortunately is one of those films that because it inspired so many tropes that it now feels so quaint as a mm-hmm. movie as to kind of not hold that power anymore. Uh, but Dave, you tell me what you think. Oh, I think you're both fools. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, I love this movie. I, I think uh, I, I understand what you guys are saying. And it's the same argument that we've been having in all of the 70s films, which is yeah, trying to disconnect our expectations in 2021 of cinematography of pacing of mm-hmm. uh tying things up in in bows the one thing i will disagree with you outright is he is not a police procedural that's a heist movie in my mind but sure sure uh, yeah the zodiac again that's like a psychological thrill but i know what your point is like tv shows are probably uh, more apt you know the csi science kind of you know approach yeah where it, it's just been are, like it's, know, it's, been, death. it's been 40 plus years of like nbc's thursday night lineup with yeah. like Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, A Law and Order, CSI. Well, like it just has been so f- long. You've seen all of that stuff, right? Yeah, forty years of people trying to remake this film, frankly. Right, right. and uh, and yeah, and some are more successful, I suppose, in direct frame by frame comparison. But you know what I liked uh, about this movie is, uh, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about all the implied and. Uh, problematic racism but mm-hmm. you know whether that's a reflection of the character or, or of the times we can have a good debate about that because i don't actually know the answer to that but spoiler alert he's racist against everybody the way you should be am i right so that's yeah. that's the plus except uh you know us chinks didn't make can we say that uh, but you can say it i can't say it i thought it was great i love i love the grit and i have a soft spot as as kyle knows for Oh, for this sort of like uh, kind of a rougher movie i guess mm. uh, i like the ending it it, it well, takes you off guard because it's it's not meant to be nice and they're not meant to win and it's it's supposed to be cynical because as we've been talking about with the end of the code all of these uh, maybe oh I don't know if freaking qualifies as an O tour but this new wave of American film where like fuck it you know we saw in the last picture show I, I don't want people to be happy you know you got to see how awful things are at the ground right. level Shaft same thing and Sweetback and all this. You know, whether it's successful or more successful than the films we've watched so far. I mean, it's more exciting than Nicholas and Alexandra. Well, uh, that, that is true. Yes. I hope <laughs> and apparently, apparently, this is the second film to do the, uh, the uh, car level camera chase stuff. I hmm. mean, that's, I know that's standard. It's like in rom-coms now, but that's, right. it was so exciting to watch. And the one thing I thought of is his car gets fucked up and you don't see that as often anymore. No, you know? well, 
reading up on it, uh, some of those were actually very real. Where those yeah, some of, some of the car crashes were not supposed to happen, <laughs> but oh, because really? they're going so fast, they do actually crash. And he kind of just kept going, and they kept that into the film. So you, I wow. remember when Ronin came out, and they mm-hmm. made a big deal about that car chase scene. But it's the same shit they did in seventy one. I want to ask the question. And I want to compare these two movies because they're written by the same person. I'm curious why you're maybe not as enthusiastic about Shaft as you are about this movie. Yeah, I think the difference for me between Shaft and this film was just the production value. Mm-hmm. And I think that the idea we talked about in the so-called black exploitation genre was almost a lampooning factor because they're pushing so hard against how they've been repressed in film and everything that it becomes cartoonish. It feels a little bit different. So the parts that I like about Shaft actually are uh, reflected in French Connection when he's going out on the on the ground and finding out from his sources on who's doing what. His attitude is very similar where he's like, he doesn't give a fuck about anybody. He's just trying to get the truth. But there are cartoonish things in Shaft that I, I just couldn't buy into. Mm-hmm. And the just like not the pacing, but sequencing. Uh, started getting very jittery in Shaft because, you know, it was Gordon yeah. Park's first film. And, and you can tell that they did it on a shoestring budget, that he'd never directed a feature film before. This movie, for me, has a very clean, polished finish I- right. in a 70s style. In, in a documentary type format, too. Like, that's which what they're trying to emulate, yeah. Right, which apparently is a, is a thing, as, we've been, as I've been reading up on. No, it's fascinating. I know you didn't, but when we talked about Shaft, I made it my own personal thing to watch, like, every sequel. The movie that comes out the very next year, Shaft's Big Score, also written by the same person, Ernest Tideman, basically has this almost exact same car chase, foot chase (laughs) in it. It's so interesting now that I know that. It's like, oh, okay, so he went back to the same well. They end off in a very different manner, but for the first half, it's very, very similar to what is in this movie. I wonder if that takes away some of the uh, interest and how you watch this film. If you right. watched a movie that came out in the same era that essentially emulated it the year after. Right. And those things are so hard to contextualize. So, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex, uh, before we go into some of the backstory here, because you did mention some of the stuff that you really liked, uh, let's expound on that. What is some of the stuff that you really liked about this movie? I mean, we already mentioned the acting. Like everybody did a great job. There was nothing I felt that was like, oh, that's, you know, that sucked. I thought, you know, basically from that perspective, it was really good. I really loved the the car foot train chase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought that was awesome, especially the the shot with the train overhead and the car below. Like, I, I thought there was some really cool stuff in there that I enjoyed. Uh, and overall, I still enjoyed the movie. And I imagine if I had watched it in 1971, I probably would have been like floored. Like, that was amazing. That was crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that type of action just had not really been seen at that scale before. So Yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, when you put it in that context, right? Because now I watch, you know, Inception with these crazy action set pieces sure. and whatever, right? And, and so, but then when you put it in the context of 50 years ago, it seems so much more epic. You know, what's interesting you bringing this up here, Alex, is that that's just starting to happen for me where like movies that I grew up with that I understand is like, no, 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 no. Like you don't understand. Like at the time, this was like amazing. Mm-hmm. And it still like holds that little special place in my heart. And now people that are coming to those movies, you know, 30 years later, are like, I don't get it. Like this doesn't really hold up. And I can't wait for that moment in like another 25 years where people are like, Inception, like, I guess it's okay action. I don't know. It just doesn't. 
doesn't really do it for me anymore. Yeah, yeah, that that will be interesting. And I wonder, you know, because we we watch some of these things and some things become classics. Where yeah. It's like, no, no, like everybody just kind of accepts like that is amazing. Like Freddy got fingered. People still watch, you know, Empire Strikes Back for the yep. first time and are like, that was a great movie. And so I, I wonder what it is that gives something you know, staying power to say, oh, no, like it's still incredible versus oh, it was cool then, but now it's whatever. I don't, yeah. Dave, do you have a, an idea on that? Like, what is it that makes certain movies have that huge staying power and other ones not? I mean, I don't know if we could define yeah. it, but, mm-hmm. you know, like that's an interesting example. And, you know, I have uh, I have a hard on for Kurosawa and and uh, and some of these like so-called, you know, Orson Welles, at least Citizen Kane, et cetera. Um, Casablanca. What is it that's, if not different, that allows them to transcend? You know, and I don't know when when you brought up Inception. The two thoughts I had is I'm trying to watch this MCU universe thing again, and it's kind of boring because mm. right now, actually, Hollywood's always been like this. As soon as something works, 15 movies have to come out immediately that do the exact same thing because they know they can bank on it, and so you, it just becomes. Uh, exhausting so i'm watching mm-hmm. it all the fight scenes are kind of the same so we just did winter soldiers so now the russo but it's fucking yeah. peter green whatever green grass shaky cam and nobody knows what they're fucking doing i tried to watch inception recently and i actually found myself kind of detached from the movie like hmm. uh, when i first saw it i thought it was the craziest thing i'd ever watched and i don't know isn't christopher nolan now becoming a bit of a one-trick pony it's weird to think about stuff like that well so, I, hmm. I also i also think about this piece a lot about what would this be like if the first time I'd seen it was on a big screen, like in a theater with a group mm, right. of people? Because I, to your MCU point even, definitely I have returned to some of those films. And I'm a big like Marvel fanboy, so I'll say that up front. But um, there's definitely certain ones that because I saw it like on opening night with a bunch of nerds that I just rated it higher when I than when I watch it at home a year later by myself. I'm like, oh, you know what? Like there are some of these things that don't really actually work all that well. So I think that context also matters a whole lot too. Mm. Specifically for like Empire Strikes Back, you know, mm-hmm. Star Wars is an interesting anomaly where Casablanca, I mean, maybe this is a thing, Seven Samurai, that there's something about certain transcendental movies that cannot be re-emulated. But I don't know what that magic sauce is. So, like, Lucasfilms couldn't make anything after Empire. That was shit. Like, that wasn't shit. Even Return of the Jedi is almost unwatchable right now. You know, there are moments in that movie that are good. <laughs> I, think but, I think you're overstating that case, Dave. Come but on. Okay. When <laughs> there's part, particularly towards the end, I mean, it's just, it starts to fall apart really quickly because you can't, you can't make movies like that over and over again. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so to your guys' point, have we been able to rebuild French Connection in a way that is more refined, has been honed into something a little bit sharper? Yeah, probably that's true. And so it loses its staying power generationally. Casablanca was not the first film noir type of film to right. come out, but it holds a lot more weight because it was doing something that can't be emulated. I don't know what that thing is. It's well, an amalgam I, I, of just yeah, to talk genres. Of, I mean, I can bring only a slight bit of context, not that I'm like a huge Casablanca scholar. But one of the big things is that until that point, Humphrey Bogart was always a villain. This literally, that was literally the first movie that he was playing a good guy. And so people are like, oh, wait, that's interesting. This is Ingmar Bergman's, I think, only second English language film. So she was fairly new. 
Um, and they were both not the original choices. They were like the third or fourth choice of the director. And so it's kind of this weird, like lightning in a bottle sort of thing where like every single person that was supposed should have been cast was cast. And everyone has tried to make the sequel to Casablanca or remake it. And it just never works because it was just those people had to be in those roles sort and of thing. So I, I think, I mean, it, it says a lot what you're talking about being in the theater with people, right? It adds so much more enjoyment. I will not just sit down and watch Endgame. I love the Marvel movies too, but I'm not yeah. just going to sit down and watch Endgame because right. I watched it in the theater with, you know, hundreds of other people all sitting there cheering, excited, you know, people crying, you know, whatever. And so it gives that different experience. Same thing. I watched Casablanca in, uh, in a humanities class at university. And so it was in that context of, oh, there's some value here specifically. And then, you know, I watch the Star Wars movies when my dad says, oh, I watched these as a kid and they matter, right? And so everything that we watch comes with this context attached to it. And sometimes it means we'll enjoy it. Sometimes it means we won't. And sometimes it means eating a tub of ice cream while watching five season of RuPaul's Drag Race. I think one thing too that you brought up, Dave, that we should address before we go into backstory is the reality of this focusing on police officers or a police officer mm. who is profiling black people, roughing them up, not really doing due process, all the things that like the Black Lives Matter movement has been really focusing on here in modern day that we know has been here for decades. But definitely I know from, again, from a 2021 context, it's like watching them like, yikes, like this mm -hmm. is not something I'm really enjoying watching. I, I will agree, yes, like the... The one caveat is that he is a jerk to every single person. So that only slightly lessens it for me. But we cannot also pretend that the New York City cops, and hopefully I don't get sued for this, but that the New York City cops are a deeply racist organization as evidenced by all the videos that I've been watching here this year. Mm -hmm. It is hard to nail down on an individual basis where people's biases are. So. Yeah. I mean, think about this as context. This, if this is the same writer as we see that co-wrote Shaft, is this a reflection of the white male lens or is this a reflection of the assumptions of police work at the time? Is this a reflection of a societal class structure? Because at the time, all, you know, the vast majority of African Americans are economically depressed as well, uh, repressed as well. So, yeah, when this movie starts and they have that first chase scene, I, you know, I was definitely taken aback because of modern con context. But as soon as he calls his partner a guinea or he starts, you know, like using, um, you know, uh, racial terms to describe everybody around him, it doesn't make it better. But I noticed that the main bad guy is this white French dude who's bringing heroin. He's mm -hmm. shaking down the low-income black people mm -hmm. to get to his informant to find out where drugs are coming from. Again, not to justify that these are socially sensitive depictions, but it, so it is jarring. Um, well, I, I guess that the thing is about it, because we know from our Shaft episode, like Ernest Tideman was, that was his beat as a newspaper man for a long time, was reporting on crime. Like he had a relationship with some of the underworld people, so he understood how they talked and sort of thing. And so I think that that might be why I'm not like so overly repulsed by this necessarily, because... This is the reality. This movie, these characters are based on real people. Those are this mm -hmm. based on a real cop who were doing these things. And then, of course, like dialed up to 11. There was no car chase like they show in this movie. Wasn't but, there? But like the day-to-day the -day, like 
going into the bar, like checking leads, that kind of thing. That is very much based on a single person's life uh, who is mm-hmm. on set giving advice. So if there was something completely out of left field, I'm pretty sure they would have stepped in and been like, um, no, that's not how it happened. Right, right. And I, I think it's important to remember, too, like that doesn't make how do I how do I put it there? There's like the depiction of racism mm-hmm. and then like actually, you know, because the film depicts racism doesn't make the film racist. Right. I, th- I think this is where we got into <laughs> to bring up this movie that we continue to reference that I absolutely hated and had a very deep level, like a very negative response to, which is Death in Vienna, right? Where I feel Venice, that movie- Venice, keeps saying Vienna. It was in Venice. Ven- was in oh Venice. my God. I don't know why I want to go to Vienna They so weren't bad. in Austria. Yeah. I mean, no. Austria's prettier and it's it probably prettier. smells better, but- uh, But Death Death in Venice, I should get the name right if I hate it so much. The Death in Venice, which I think not only shows like a pedophile, but kind of like supports that point of view- Whereas this movie, I, I feel, does not do the reverse of that. It depicts racism, but I don't think we're supposed to like, oh, God, like that's great racism that I'm viewing here right mm-hmm. now. At least that's what, how I feel. I don't know if either of you have an alternate point of view. No, I, I, th- I think I'm on that page. I didn't notice any racism. Uh, well, let's get into some of the backstory here then. So The French Connection opened on October 7th, 1971. It is rated 7.7 on IMDb. It has a 94 on Metacritic and on Rotten Tomatoes from 61 critics, it's rated at 98%. And from 25,000 plus users, it's at 87%. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent this on iTunes and on YouTube. And it's also streaming on Disney Plus under the Star banner. Not Stars. Yeah, no Z. No Z. That's a different service altogether. This is Star under Disney Plus. Uh, its budget was $1.8 million. I didn't have a lot of information on opening and how it broke down domestically or internationally. I do know that it ended up with $75 million, which uh, adjusted for inflation is like a movie making $487 million today. Wow. It was the number three top grossing film in the United States in 1971. It was the number four top grossing film worldwide. Its plot description from IMDb is a pair of New York City cops in the Narcotics Bureau stumble onto a drug smuggling job with a French connection. Wait a second. Is that why they call it this? <laughs> I don't know what you're complaining at the beginning of the episode for. There's yeah. literally a connection to France. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty right straightforward. <laughs> uh, so this stars Gene Hackman as Jimmy Popeye Doyle, Roy Scheider as Buddy Russo, uh, Fernando Ray as Alain Charnier. Or Alain, I think is how you actually supposed to say that in France or in French. Alain Charnier, Tony Lo Bianco as Sal Boca, and then Marcel Bazuffi as Pierre Nicoli. Anything you want to say about these actors? Uh, my favorite thing about Gene Hackman is uh, apparently he's grew up a pretty rough and tumble guy. Like he got kicked out of school because he fought. He got kicked out of the army because he fought. And when he finally uh, came to acting, he was like twenty five, already married, and he went to this. Uh, what is it called? The Pasadena Theater Playhouse and uh, people hated him there so he made one friend so he's like six foot two and he's an angry dude and he made one friend who's like probably five six and super eccentric oh Dustin Hoffman right is this so the two of them are voted by the class as least likely to succeed right right and it turned out to be Dustin Hoffman so Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman are considered by their peers as the biggest losers in this acting college 
Gene Hackman's kicked out of there, both for being an asshole, and his teacher scored him 1.6 out of 10. I mean, they had a point system, a decimal <laughs> point system in an acting school. Yeah. That, by the way, that is what you've given most films this year <laughs> that we've talked about. You know, there's, there's, there's a... There's a Dave connection there. Um, so, yeah, they remember we talked about in Godfather. They they would end up moving to New York and hanging out with Robert Duvall and probably drinking too much and right. uh, just having a great time. And Gene, uh, this I just love this quote. So, he's struggling. Nobody will hire him. And uh, he's got all these horrible, horrible jobs uh, just to make ends meet. And uh, one of those Pasadena people, the instructor shows up in New York and he's eating at a restaurant that he's serving at. And he mm. actually says, this is exactly what I was talking about. You're, you're a fucking loser kind of thing. And so, he's, he's quoted later. What is it? It says, uh, it's a long paragraph, but I just, he said, this is, he wrote this. It was more psychological warfare because I wasn't going to let those fuckers get me down. I mean, that's, that's Gene Hackman. And then I think... Uh, he got a little bit off Broadway and this movie comes out and he wins an Oscar and all of a sudden he's making two to five movies a year. Everything's yeah. getting nominated. He becomes one of the greatest, considered greatest actors of our generation or past, sorry, Alex, of the previous generation. So, I'm excited. I, I love and this guy. there was like how I also kind of remember Gene Hackman because at least the narrative, so <laughs> asterisk this a little bit, but the narrative being he has this great 70s, early 80s, he kind of has a kind of not a falling out, but it kind of goes on the skids as far as career goes. And then in 1992, does Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, wins another Academy Award and kind of reinvigorates his career for like another 15 years sort of thing. Hmm. I think Unforgiven too, the anecdote is he got typecast from French Connection of being like an action hero. And he said, I don't want to make violent movies anymore. And Clint had to personally ask him to be an Unforgiven. And that's why yeah. after 94, he only does like, dark comedies, dramas. Yeah. He doesn't want to shoot anybody. So, so he's kind of a nice guy too. You know? I, of course, have like a huge love affair with Roy Scheider because of him starring in Jaws. So, like one of my favorite movies of all time. So, he's always like Chief Brody for me. And he, he's kind of like um, not to the same level as a Charlton Heston, but whenever he comes, he, gets, he exudes dad energy for me. <laughs> Where it's just like, Wait. yeah, like he knows what he's doing. He seems like he knows what, what's up. <laughs> In what context? Like dad father figure or like dad, like daddy? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure that's true for someone out there. But no, I mean like an actual like fatherly figure type of thing. Like he just knows. Like he'll, he'll like put up his like uh, sleeves, bare his like forearms and... Well, speaking of forms, he, like, he was a shark if someone tries to attack him. He was an amateur boxer before he became an actor, which is interesting. And um, he turned down Deer Hunter, you know, two weeks before their production. He was cast as Robert De Niro's character. Interesting. All right. And then uh, they said he had a falling out. Turns out he found out that uh, he wasn't getting paid more money to be the star of that movie. And he was like, oh, you know, I'm that. too big for this shit. And he walked away and they brought in Bobby and the rest is history. Well, there you go. Huh. Um, yeah. The only other thing I will say uh, about this cast, because I don't know a lot about the last two people, but there's kind of a funny story about how Fernando Ray got cast in this movie. <laughs> so part of this movie is a uh, style. The look of this movie is based off of a French film called Z or Z. I actually don't know, but it's probably Z is probably how it's supposed to be pronounced. I pronounce it. Who cares? Also, uh, because Freakin had been watching a lot of uh, Brunel films at the time, who is, again, another, I don't know what country he's from, but known for like the art house films he I was making. He's French. He's yeah. French, yeah. Uh, uh, making those types of films at the time. 
He was like, give me that guy who's in all of the Brunel films. So he was actually thinking about somebody else. But the casting director, because <laughs> like, well, this guy's in a lot of them too, reached out to Fernando Reyes, like, do you want to be in this film? Shows up on set and Freakin's like, no, 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 that's not the guy I asked you to get. <laughs> but it turns out the guy who wanted doesn't speak English or French. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so oh, it was like this weird thing about like the guy that he actually wanted could only speak Spanish. Um, so it's like, oh, this one makes more sense. So you can actually speak French. Although he's all he's been redubbed actually because he didn't like the, his French accent. Bizarre story about this guy in this movie. Anyways, that, that's, I think it's just funny. Interesting. That that'd be like, could you imagine? Because there are those directors like Christopher Nolan. If you're like, give me the guy who's in all those Christopher Nolan movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Which one? It's like the same cast for every movie. Exactly. Get uh, Michael Caine. Is like it's like Michael, Michael Caine. Caine. He's in all of them. <laughs> yeah. Michael Caine. Is he in uh, Tenet too? Yep. Yeah. Oh, I haven't yeah. seen Tenet yet. Me neither. Have you? Maybe you've already seen it and just don't oh. know you've seen it. I'm I was going to say. Yeah. Same. From the trailer. Maybe I've seen it backwards. That's right. Um, not to get off on too much of a tangent. This I think most people are gonna most people are gonna hate that movie after they watch it. Uh but there is one sequence I think is like phenomenal. There is it's a really cool. Anyways, that's, that should be your like if there's a if there's an epitaph or like a sub thing, it's gonna be like that one scene was phenomenal. That's you yeah, say that about so right. yeah, every well, I, I can I can identify stuff that's in like shitty stuff and <laughs> shitty films. Like, at least that I part can. was cool. <laughs> okay, so this was written by Ernest Heideman. Tidyman, based on the book The French Connection, written by Robin Moore, directed by William Friedkin. Boy, this went down a rabbit hole super quickly. I had no idea the, the history of Robin Moore, specifically, the, the author of the original book. So let's start with the book. Its full title, depending on when it was published, is either The French Connection, The World's Most Crucial Narcotics Investigation, or the French Connection, A True Account of Cops, Narcotics, and International Conspiracy. Ooh. So the author of the book, Robin Moore, served in World War II as this nose gunner. So up in the plains, like shooting at people. Uh, so he flew missions in Europe during the war. And his father, Robert Lowell Moore, is the co-founder of Sheraton Hotels. So he comes from money. Let's put it that way. Uh, this is also probably part of the reason why he himself uh, went to Harvard after he came back from the war, where he just so happened to become classmates and friends with Robert F. Kennedy. So, by the, so by the sounds of it, he was already working in like television production and was already getting jobs as a writer. But with his connections, he found himself being allowed to profile the U.S. Army Special Forces. And a general at the time... Uh, tells him that if he's going to write about them, then he should participate in the training. So he does. He becomes the very first civilian to ever participate in the Special Forces Qualification Course, which is sometimes hmm. called the Q Course. And he ships out with the 5th Special Forces Group to cover their deployment into Vietnam. And so he would eventually write about this in a book called The Green Berets, which was also turned into a movie called The Green Berets, starring John Wayne. That film, that which, by the way, is the only kind of context I have about uh, the Green Berets, but that film, uh, while making a ton of money, was such a critical failure because that was one of the first times that the United States Army had its full support behind that movie. So basically, they took out any bad thing that the U.S. Mm. did that's detailed in the book uh, and kind of makes this puff piece propaganda film, which critics at the time very blatantly called out. And like, this is not 
exactly 100% true. But it's a John Wayne film. They're not going to be critical about the US. So They love he, their racists. Yeah. He also co-wrote the song Ballad of the Green Berets, which is still kind of like an army song that's sung today. Because of his like becoming upset with the army for doing that, uh, this is his follow-up book. He would go on then to like chronicle other political things, a lot of in like Central America, US involvement with stuff like that. This is going to be such a gloss over because I would love to spend more time understand, like learning more about him. But uh, the US government intentionally stopped the publication of a couple of his books so that they could not become published and would, were only published like decades afterwards when they weren't going to be so um, hurtful to the image of the United States government. That, that is a thing. Uh, so his last bit of writing, The Hunt for Bin Laden, was met with controversy because one of his major sources was found out later to have stretched the truth a bit, let's say. So he had a long career doing investigative journalism and had a bit of controversy himself. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the book, The French Connection, is a true story. True. I'm going to put that in quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a true story. Although the names are changed. Uh, and in real life, it was detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso who attempted to uncover the participants in a major drug smuggling enterprise. As a complete sidebar to this, Eddie Egan is like an interesting figure. So like that's who Popeye Doyle is based off of. Uh, but his life has been dramatized a few times. So this movie does it. There's a, there's a 1973 film called Badge 373 starring Robert Duvall as him. And a 1986 made-for-TV movie called Popeye Doyle. So he's been adapted a few times, his life and his, his career. In this movie, you saw him because he plays the police captain. The police captain is the real-life Popeye that is yelling at uh, Gene Hackman throughout this movie. Oh, just interesting. To get, just to get super meta about this. <laughs> yeah. That's what we do here. Yeah. We keep it meta. We keep it metamucil because you're so old. He would actually leave the force pretty soon after this and become an actor, mostly on television, mostly as police officers. Do what you know. His counterpart, Sonny Grosso, would stick around in the movie industry as well. On this film, he plays a very bit part as FBI agent Clyde Klein, but he was also a technical advisor, a role that he would have in another little film, Dave, called The Godfather. (laughs) So he goes on to talk about, like, <laughs> this is what the mobsters would do, and this is how they wow. would talk. Uh, and then he would go on to be a producer of TV shows like Kojak and Beretta. Kojak. And, Teddy. He, pa- and he passed away just last year. So he, he lived a long life. Oh, wow. Okay, so that was the small digression. <laughs> Coming back, the book is published. Producer Philip D'Antoni, who was coming off of his first film producing credit with Bullet, was looking for another gritty story. So he comes across this book, The French Connection, but needs somebody to write the screenplay. And because Moore was starting to have his troubles with the U.S. government, he needs somebody else to write it. Uh, So who knows if it was by chance or not, but he also happened to read the book Shaft. And he thinks, oh, well, the author of this could be able to write the screenplay for The French Connection. So he contacts Ernest Heidemann to take the story of The French Connection, but change things to make it a little bit more thrilling, you know, like adding a chase sequence. Now, William Friedkin claims that he rewrote much of this script, but he still placed, as, a, as, a, um, uh, as, as good faith, he places Tideman's name first in the credits. Now, Tideman disputes this claim. I just want to make that be said. And he's always been annoyed by the fact that Friedkin said this. But, so take that as you will about how this all shakes out. But those are two, two true facts. 
because everything needs to tie into everything else in 1971. Dave, this is where I am starting down like everything's a conspiracy. Friedkin's grandparents had to flee to Ukraine in 1903 because of the pogroms that were coming through. So Nicholas, Nicholas. II Nicholas, directly made it so that his grandparents came to the United States and he's born here so that he can make a film in 1971 in the same year that a bunch of films about that very event are being made. Wild. Okay. His mother is a nurse. His dad is a semi-professional softball player and has a bunch of other jobs. Um, <laughs> what, what is that? Wait, we got to pause. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to picture a professional softball player. Nothing against but, softball. Not, no, I'm sorry. Know? Sorry, Dave. I, I, maybe I didn't hit that hard enough. He was a semi-professional softball <laughs> player. <laughs> Uh, I think that means he was not super good. Like he would play for a while and then have to go have an actual job in the off season is basically what that means. Got paid in beer. Probably. I'm just trying to think of getting paid for playing softball. I I missed my calling. I guess so. I'm I'm hoping at some point that I can be paid for T-ball because at least then I'll be able to hit the ball. (laughs) Well, at least 20% of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Freakin cites uh, Citizen Kane as the movie that like, kind of blew his mind and that he would watch constantly. Uh, the same is true for Psycho. But right after high school, he begins working at a television station in the mailroom. And within two years, he's directing programs for them. He moves to Hollywood in 1965. One of his early credits is the director of the only film Sonny and Cher star in together called Good Times. Uh, which he himself says is completely unwatchable. So that's, a, that's him. He has a very fascinating career, but I mean, he would go through this avant-garde period and then he went through a string of films of basically producing either unproduced plays from Broadway or small-time produced plays on Broadway. So this is where like Boys in the Band is one of the, the ones that has probably the largest reputation. That's the movie he's actually coming off of. So they hire him to direct this because it's a small budget. He works with their small budget. And he initially does not want Gene Hackman in this role. His first two choices are Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, both who are way too expensive for this $1.8 million budgeted movie. Uh, his next choice, fascinatingly, was Jackie Gleason. Alex, have you ever seen The Honeymooners at all? I have not. Okay. Like, no. This is like even 20 years before this movie came out. That's what his like big claim to fame was. But um, Jackie Gleason was considered box office poison at the time. So like the producer were like, not a chance. His next choice was a journalist who had never acted before. But he refused because he didn't want to film any scenes where he had to be driving. So eventually he has to be like, okay, I guess Gene Hackman it is. He was still pretty early in his career. Like Dave pointed out, he, you know, was just starting to come out. The biggest role probably at this point was he had a very small part in Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Freakin also only took the job because of an incident that happened. Uh, This is like the new Hollywood and old Hollywood, like, jamming in together. Apparently, Freakin was living with Howard Hawks's daughter. I don't know what that really means, to be honest with you, but that's how it's framed. He was living with Howard Hawks's daughter. Howard Hawks says that every movie that Freakin has made so far has been lousy and that he should make a movie with a chase better than anyone else has done it. Um, so that's what motivates Friedkin to go and do this. As far as the production goes, it, nothing like overly out of left field happens only that it did run over like the original budget was only supposed to be 1.5 million it goes to 1.8 um i'm 
I'm wondering if that has something to do with the actual car crashes that happened in it. The one thing I will point out is that the New York police really, really hated the scene where Popeye shoots that guy in the back uh, because they say that, that would be murder. However, Eddie Egan, as we've just pointed out, police officer who it's based on, had absolutely no problem with it. So Friedkin believes that like it's probably would have happened then because he didn't put up a fuss. Uh, this film was nominated for eight Academy Awards. It won five, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Hackman, and then Best Screenplay for Ernest Tideman. And that's kind of the quick history of this film. Anything anyone wants to bring up after that? I think we need to define how you use the word quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. Talk you about say this. that all the time. <laughs> it gives you context, Dave. It gives you context. I'll just add one more thing before we should let Alex actually speak here. Yeah. Apparently, Gene Hackman was offered the role of uh, Mike Brady. So he was almost the dad in Brady Bunch. That would not have worked. That would have been such a that was that would have been a train wreck to see. I kind of want to see that just to see what that would look like. Yeah, let's do a do a remake. <laughs> I mean, he he's ninety something years old now, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Let's do a remake of Brady Bunch with with Gene Hackman, ninety one years old as the dad. I want to see this. I love it. I guess where do I start, uh, Alex? Is like, is there any themes or anything like that that you like really thought were interesting? I didn't find any themes. I mean, last time I was on, we talked about the Cider House rules. Mm. And there the, was like... The three best people to talk about abortion, by the way. <laughs> us three. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We're qualified. Uh, so, there was like 10 themes in that movie. And then in this one, I just watched it. And it was like, it, it was fun. But I didn't feel like it was saying anything, right? Like, it wasn't seeming to make a statement about anything. Right. It was just kind of... Uh, action thriller is cool. Yeah, like I know David's gonna get mad at me for for saying this over and over again, but this is like such a, an example for me of a movie that is of its time rather than timeless. Uh, in my opinion, where mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, I don't, I, I personally don't think that this is really getting into any like meaty themes to really delve into, other than it being like this is a great example of a guy who is like so like hyper focused. And obsessed by something that he just can't let it go and it kind of just drives him throughout the rest of the movie i, I find mm -hmm. like the technical aspects of this movie i think a far more interesting conversation to have than like quote unquote like what this movie is about but uh, dave do you have disagreement there no you know i, I can't remember if we, we talked about this on mic or off mic probably on mic last year but you know this nuance of whether a best picture is supposed to be something that's philosophical or why mm -hmm. you know an MCU or a Matrix or something can't be nominated for a best picture right now um until Lord of the Rings you know and uh, there's just these there's just these uh, barriers of entry that have evolved over the years but this is essentially a popcorn flick i mean one of the things that might be from a bygone era is the depiction of maybe not drug use, but the problems that drug, uh, mm. that, that, uh, what do you call it, the drug economy is happening and how it's not a domestic thing and coming in from France of all places. I mean, this is, I'm pretty sure before the characterization of cocaine from Colombia and South America, South this is before, um, you know, it's before Nancy Reagan's war on drugs. So there's- uh, Which there's worked actually. It definitely 100% worked. Yeah, she's <laughs> awful. So- <laughs> I think there's um there's something that maybe it wanted to do, but uh, you mean you brought it up. Freakin was told that it would be an opportunity to make a car chase scene, so uh, I think that's cool, and I think that uh, I enjoy it. Uh, maybe a sense of nostalgia because I was growing up in the in the '80s, and you know most of the films look like this. They're 
there was still a little bit grit. New York City was still a shithole. It's not yeah, the Manhattan yeah. that we see today. And right. when you listen to anecdotes of people who live there, it's like you walk outside, someone's going to try to fucking cut you. Now it's, you know, everybody's a millionaire and you always see people like Seinfeld driving in his fancy cars, but that is not the New York of the 70s and 80s. So, um, for me, whenever I see depictions, I'm just naturally kind of in on it. So, so, the same thing with Shaft, you know, like when he's, just remember he's opening scene, he's walking into caps. I love that stuff. Yeah, you flipping know? them off and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean- I'm flipping you both off right now. Um, I, I think that brings up a couple of different things. By the way, I just want to make it a point of saying out loud that I, I don't want it to come across as my position being a, a movie that doesn't have any like themes is therefore a bad movie because that's not what my position is at all. But but I, what, you, what you said that I really want to like dig into a bit is like, what is a best picture and what does that mean? Because I think that is very fundamentally changed. We kind of started to talk about this in our 1999 season. Of the five nominees that we've talked about, four of them were in the top 10 grossing films of the US. Like I said, upcoming this Sunday, this Sunday, everyone, is, uh, the, is the Oscars. And of the eight nominees... Now, granted, it's COVID times and everything. Like, I understand that there's some extenuating circumstances here, but you can extrapolate that for the past five years. I would be shocked if any one of those eight has made more than $10 million. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they are not films that, like, the vast majority of people are going out to watch. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. But I do think that there's a very different time to be in the early 70s and being, like, at least four of the five here, almost everyone has seen the, is of the movie going public. Whereas nowadays, it's like either I can't see this or it's only in like small theaters or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just find that fascinating. Alex, I don't know if you have anything <laughs> to say about that, like the, how the Oscars has evolved uh, itself over the years. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never really paid that much attention to them. How like dare I you? don't, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't stake the, the films that I watch or that I care about on them. Uh, and so I, I don't think I can really, really speak to it. But I guess looking at, you know, I'm aware of some movies winning certain Oscars mm -hmm. and stuff. And so I guess you can see how things have changed when this one won 50 years ago, all these, all these awards and accolades. And then now we're, we're looking at other things. And I think maybe that says that we're looking for film to not just be an entertainment medium but more to be a communication, right? A communication of how we're feeling, what we're thinking about, what we're worried about. And, and I think we're starting to see that, that shift from it being, oh, cool, I can make these pretty pictures to, oh, I can, I can say something with this. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just like this fascinating change that I've observed. And uh, because I am the one person on this podcast that is like obsessed with the Oscars, not that I think that they're like, I understand that award shows inherently are meaningless. I just like the pomp and circumstance of the whole thing. But because mm -hmm. it is like the one, like the one area that so many people look to and it can provide a bump as far as like viewership to what actually wins Best Picture. I think it does have some importance in that regard. And the mm -hmm. simple fact that I think Endgame was the first time where a movie that became the highest grossing film worldwide was not nominated for Best Picture, right? Because like Avatar was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Star Wars was nominated for Best Picture. Gone with the Wind was nominated for Best Picture. These 
huge films that become like the top grossing films worldwide were recognized by like, oh, audiences are going to see them. And uh, this awards body of peers is also going to award it. And that seems to have completely diverted in the last, I would say, six to seven years to be like, hmm. These like artistic triumphs are going to be rewarded. Nothing wrong with that. And what people are actually going to watch is no longer what we care about. I don't know, Dave. I don't know if you have anything witty or sarcastic or caustic to say about that. Should rename me lie. No, I, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to think. I mean, listening to you both, uh, I was going to ask Alex generationally what if there was sort of a shape or perspective of what you would, Alex, consider to be a great film in contemporary work. Um, hmm. I also thought, it's interesting, you know, if, if and I don't have data on this, because like Alex, I think the Oscars are not worth anybody's time, and anybody who spends so much time wondering about them really ought to look carefully at one's life. <laughs> I'm Kyle flipping over the me. table. I'm flipping over the table right now. <laughs> no, but uh, if you're saying, Kyle, and I'll, I'll believe you that, it's a phenomenon over the last less than a decade that we're moving away from nominating Hollywood blockbusters. But that also seems to correlate with this so-called cancel and woke culture. And there's well, something to be and said. I, I will say too, just because I know this because I'm a loser and I keep up with like Oscar stuff. But they've also, because they were getting criticized so much for for certain nominations happening and like Oscar's so white, like there's not a single non-white person nominated in any of the categories. They have added in like, and I'm not joking, hundreds of new people into the Academy, hundreds of new people from all over and all the different things. So it's not like it's, hmm. they're not trying to be as inclusive as possible. And it seems to be diverting that into like these <laughs> prestige, like small pictures instead of like gigantic big blockbusters. So I, yeah, Alex, like, what I mean, yeah, for that, and yeah, what what makes a great movie for you as a twenty-something-year-old uh, child? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, I just need to change my diaper real quick. <laughs> uh, just a little baby over here. Uh, <laughs> so I think, like, for me, I I like movies that say something. I also like to be entertained. Like my personal favorite movie, hands down, is Into the Spider Verse. Like, I think it is a phenomenal work of art on every single level. And so, I think for me, what I appreciate in a film is when you can watch it and say, oh, wow, like somebody put a lot of work and love into this. It wasn't a paint by numbers. Oh, yeah, we, you know, it, we're just turning out the machine. We're just pumping things out. Somebody thought, I want to talk about this. I th and I think that's why things like Pixar movies do so well is because it starts with, let's like address this emotion, you know, let's talk about this emotion and, and kind of explore it using story, using film, whether it's through animation or live action, or you add in effects and sound effects and music and all of these things. When you can sit down and watch something and say, you know, People cared about that. I I think that to me is what makes something a great film. It's yeah. I mean, uh, I think that's great. I mean, I love Spider Verse. It is always hard to compare things as well across genre. So if I yeah. want to sit down and uh, yeah, be titillated, you could watch an MCU movie. But if I want to sit and watch something and 
be afraid of life. You know, there are, I mean, Parasite's a big one where it's a big budget thing, but it, it scares the shit out of you because it's not only a horror movie, but there may actually be people living, <laughs> living in your house. Yeah, yeah. Maybe then the follow up, Alex, is uh, if you were to award awards, the Alexis, I mean, what do you think would be a way to evaluate? You know, so many films. I mean, it's like books. You can't read books anymore. The people are pumping out, you know, it's probably, you know, I don't know, several thousand ebooks that are published, especially mm-hmm. through COVID, you know, a month. Do you think there's a way that an award show does work? We, we're not even talking about French Connection anymore, but just, just to get a generation idea because you didn't feel that this movie is so impactful, which, I, yeah, it's totally fair. But how do we evaluate movies moving forward, in your opinion? Yeah, and I, I think had I been in the context of the 70s, you know, after Kyle went through everything and we've kind of discussed, you know, the context of this, I think it does change. Like, yeah, would I think in 1971 it probably deserved it? Yeah, I'd probably be like, yeah, it was a great movie. It was amazing. You know, it, you know, did this and it did that. And here's the history. And so I, I think, you know, it's hard to judge it looking back. But then, you know, currently, I think if I was running an awards thing, I would get as many voices as possible. Like Kyle was talking about, you know, the Academy being forced to, you know, bring in hundreds of new people to to actually participate in this occasion because it's like, oh, you mean I can't just look at what I saw in the theater in LA this year, right? It's like, no, <laughs> there are billions of people on the planet who have made other works, who have seen other things, who think other things deserve this. And so I think if I was handing out awards and it is, you know, yeah, okay, if I was just, you know, handing out awards for this small group of people in this area, that's a lot easier. But then if you're talking about, you know, this is the award show for film, for the planet, you know, we're trying to say this is the best of all of it. Yeah, you need to get the other voices in there. Because I haven't seen all of these movies. And so you get the other voices in there to be like, oh, but you didn't see this little film made in India this year. Like, you should probably check that out and, and you know, uh, see what it's all about. Yeah, I, I think what that ties into, too, is like, we also have the privilege. We have the privilege of, of time on our hands and knowing, like, well, this stuff actually has survived. Like, the example I always give is The Princess Bride. Princess Bride mm-hmm. comes out, I think it's 1985 or somewhere in the early 80s. It bombs at the box office. It doesn't, I don't think it even cracks top 10. The number one movie at the box office was like some movie starring Kirk Cameron that no one talks about anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, well, that's what the people were going to. Like, this is what they uh, deemed valuable and that's what they wanted to give their probably $5 back in the 80s as far as their movie ticket goes. And yet what movie has remained prescient what movie has uh, retained its value to people the princess bride people still talk about that and quote from it and you see gifts from it all the time online like so it's held its cultural value even though it wasn't like honored as being great uh but you see this from the oscars too it's like that movie won over that other movie like how did that happen it's like well at the time people just thought that was a little bit better yet had no cultural staying power uh afterwards so it's always so hard when you're like in the middle of it to know like well in mm-hmm. 10 15 30 years from now this is what people are going to value and this is how the times are going to change there should be a hindsight oscar that oh, like yes. they just look back you know 25 years 
oh, actually, that was the, you know, that's the one that had the staying power. I, I, I want to go even further than that. I think that too. I've said that out loud before. I think that PricewaterhouseCooper, the analyzation firm who like tabulates all the votes. How do you even know the name of this? Because they literally every year at the Oscars. PricewaterhouseCooper. Anyways, doesn't matter. I think that what they should do is like set a, a, a time frame, like a time capsule. And after 25 years, they've released the votes. And I want to see how close some of the votes mm. actually were. Be like, yeah, this won, but it won with three votes. Like, it was that close to being, you know, the other way around. I think that would be kind of a fascinating thing to see. What movie are we talking about? Getting back to this movie, though, The French Connection, there, there's just a couple things I just want to knock off because we've said that there's not much as far as themes to really delve into here. I do want to just point out, like, uh, the filmmaking style. Of course, it's emulating that kind of um, my favorite uh, French word, cinema verite. <laughs> That's like mm-hmm. the fancy word you can say or like that documentary feel. I also just want to call out the fact of the guy, the French guy, who is like sees the muscle and like rips it open and like eats it while he's talking to the other person. I'm like, what a power move. <laughs> if someone <laughs> walked towards me and grabbed a muscle off the beach and started eating it while they were talking to me, like, okay, I am not in your league right now. <laughs> I am submissive, please. <laughs> I will say like my favorite little moments, and these are not thematic. I don't know how you guys felt about this. I mean, I love the car chase scene because the yeah. car got blown up. And I love all the tailing because for two reasons. It mm. seems much more realistic to have to do it in teams and not just be some fucking weirdo hiding behind a tree. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that they are actually caught all the time. So, yeah. you know, they have mm-hmm. this complex system. You know, the bad guys are like, yeah, they're fucking, they're right there. You know, the whole thing felt so... Well, yeah, just uncovering that. Even even when they finally find the drugs in the car, because you really are led to believe, like, well, they're not here. Like, there's not... They've literally ripped out everything. It's like, the only thing I haven't checked is whatever he says. Uh, I hear what Popeye says, like, what the he, hell? He was let's like, do it. Like, let's, let's... Like, yeah, he's like, what the heck? Why didn't you check that? Then? If you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, I didn't check this. It's like... Well, what the, like what's what? keeping it? Um, I I just want to call it the one scene that I think is like the best scene because it's almost filmed like a dance sequence, and I love that kind of choreography stuff. Is them following each other on the uh, the subway, right? One goes in, yes. one comes out. One pretends to go outside to drop something in the garbage. They come out, and it's this dance of him trying yeah. to like be in that same car, and then like the little wave he gives <laughs> as he like speeds yeah. away. I'm like, that's so perfect, and done wordlessly which i think is even better when it's like okay yeah yeah i'm in this yeah it was i mean it was a really well done film yeah like and and to the to the point of of the tailing that was you know amazing the way that they knew you know switch off okay you take him okay you go there and the whole time i was thinking I'm such an idiot. The whole time I'm thinking, just pull out your cell phone and like tell the guy. And I and then I had to keep reminding myself, no, 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 no. The, you know, this is 1971. Yeah. Okay, we do we do not need Popeye Doyle on a cell phone. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. Uh, I think one of the radio in the car scenes actually like a, a like a phone. like an actual phone, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it wasn't even yeah, like it was the, a car phone. Yeah, it didn't even have yeah. like a radio. Um, I, I think to what you're kind of pointing out here, Dave, and this is something that I'm, I'm just of a certain age and it just does it for me. When you go back into the 70s and even into the 80s, like I know that when a car crashes, like, yeah, that, those are two cars actually hitting into each other. Whereas nowadays, like possibly some of that is, but I know that a lot of it's probably like this, like digital effects and maybe there's like 
um, you know, stunt drivers and all that kind of stuff. And this one was like, no, he probably just rammed that car into that <laughs> other car. And there's something to them like, no, he's actually doing that. It's the same thrill I mm-hmm. get of Tom Cruise movies. Like, yeah, he's actually running. Oh, he's actually jumping from that roof to that rooftop. And I know he is because <laughs> I've seen the behind the footage stuff of him actually doing this stuff. I, I, I think that kind of speaks to like the quality of the movie because I'm watching it in 2021 and being entertained as though it was a thriller mm-hmm. made today, right? And I, I wasn't watching it being like, oh, this old movie, right? It's still like, it's still a good movie. You know, Dave, before we end off here, like of the five films that we've talked about that were nominated in 1971 for Best Picture, th- would this be your pick to win? Wait, what are the five? So, so last we, had picture Nicholas, show. we had Nicholas and Alexandra, A Clockwork yeah. Orange, The Last Picture Show, Fiddler on the Roof, this film, The French Connection. Yeah, if they opened up those ballots, I think it would have been very close between Fiddler and this one. I think I so too. Sense. Yeah, I uh, think so too. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof, Alex? I've not. And probably the, the other list. three you've never heard. Oh, have you seen A Clockwork Orange? I've heard of it, but I, I haven't seen you've it. You've definitely never heard of Nicholas Alexander because that <laughs> no movie- one, No one has heard about that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's garbage. And have you heard of Last Picture Show? Uh, No, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, it's weird. Like I think if we go year by year, I bet neither of us have heard of easily 80% of the nominees up until- oh, sure probably the 90s, right? Because yeah. they're just not culturally relevant. But this is an interesting year because, uh, yeah, Clockwork, French Connection, and Fielder are all names that, whether people have seen it, have lasted. Like yeah. We're talking about timelessness. Um, I don't know if you heard our uh, talk on Clockwork. Actually, no, you couldn't have because it, it hasn't been, been released yet. yet. Well, uh, it's, it's out for everyone to hear right now, Dave. So as <laughs> Yeah, I, I just have to go download it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. as you've heard, <laughs> that's another movie where this idea of timelessness is challenged because it's not because it's good, right? So it's, 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 <clears throat> it persists because of how shocking it is, yes. So, <clears throat> yeah, of the five, I would say these two should have been nominated. As you know, you loved The Last Picture Show because yeah. you're a small town boy. And uh, I thought it was boring, even though it's, it's good and it's well acted, but uh, I fell asleep. Yeah, I mean, I like this movie, but you guys yeah. bring up a great point. It's not a philosophical film. It's not trying to surprise you with some deeper rhetoric about American. I mean, maybe a little bit underneath about American culture because we don't know whether people want to accept that cops are right. cruel and. and but I think and, I think really the primary thing is like this is supposed to be an entertaining film that you're going to come and watch. Like I really do think that it's its primary focus, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. That's just what the primary focus is. I like I go back and forth. Like if I was voting. It, it would, yeah, be either Fiddler or Last Picture Show. It just depends on day of the week, really, that you get me of which one I would probably have cast my vote for. But de- definitely, definitely for me, Nicholas and Alexandra is the like scratching the head. Like, I don't see how this was considered well, something to nominate for Best Picture. I'll give, I'll give Alex a quick summary, in my opinion, of these five movies. And you can tell me because they're actually quite fundamentally different, right? So, uh, Last Picture Show is this thing that's black and white shot intentionally to look like 1951 about a dying town and everybody's angry you got clockwork orange which is about uh, a meta future where everybody's angry and trying to kill each other and rape each other and there's no resolution we have nicholas and alexandra which you sleep through because it's about the end of the zardom but it's so fucking slow and meandering uh but there are a few uh things it's like how what is it there's an intermission in it yeah. so that's you kind of get a picture it's like three three hours long just over three hours yeah and fiddler on the roof is uh based on a broadway musical and uh so it's a quite a 
quite a wide variety of genres. So yeah. just by genres, I mean, I don't know, Alex, do you think, is there something that you think would be worthy of consideration just on the concept of the film for an award on a movie? I mean, without knowing, you know, what they turned out to be, but. Yeah, well, it's hard to div- like give one award between these three or five genres, right? Like if if they're so different, it's like comparing apples to oranges, right? Yeah. It's like, well, it's like, you know, they're movies, but they're not they're not doing the same thing. They're not trying to do the same thing. Well, this thing. is where I also like put my, where I, where I make a fine distinction sometimes uh, in the year when I say, well, this is what I think the best movie is, but this is what my favorite movie was. Because those are sometimes two different questions. We're done here. Well, the, the machine has told us that we do need to wrap this up, which means that we've come to our favorite question to ask on this podcast. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Alex, what do you say? Does it hold up as a good movie? Yeah. yeah. Is it culturally culturally relevant no like it's like yeah if, if you watch it if you care to watch it you mm. know sure dave that's how i feel i'm just trying to process what alex said i mean yeah i really enjoyed watching it. cultural relevance you know i mean alex is a great opinion on that because he grew up in a different like seriously a generational thing you have access to the internet we have all these different types of narratives so if you're watching it and it feels flat yeah, maybe it's flat. We, you know, the only way maybe this thing has cultural relevance is when you do all this background research. Yeah, which is what we find out. It's the first to do this and the second to do that. We've kind of been discovering that too. And I, I mean, I mean, that's a f- more fuller conversation we can have, not right now, uh, but sometime in the future. Which is, there's certain films that I think do require that level of research to understand context that that you can then watch it and appreciate it, just like how some books some Shakespeare plays, some stuff that still persists, that it's like you kind of have to do some work with it before you can even engage with it. And that's just mm-hmm. a different level of dedication on the part of the viewer. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But yeah, going in cold versus like, okay, I have an understanding of what's going on so that I can even understand exactly what my full position is going to be. Is it, Yeah, it's just a different way <laughs> to engage with it. It's like reading um, old English texts like Beowulf, right? It's like, does the mm-hmm. actual text itself hold up? No, because no one can read it. So you have to, you know, engage with it and have a, a translation, and understand what this means. Right. So uh, I'll agree with Alex. I think it, it probably is not culturally relevant. Although I just realized the taking part of car scene was uh, done in Fast Five, wasn't it? Yeah. And The Rock discovers that they skipped the one thing and didn't check the right. the uh, memory there, card. Actually, the, it's interesting that I was thinking there are a bunch of other films like, oh, French Connection did this, French Connection did that. Yeah. Uh, I think in the Wikipedia, it mentions how the film Munich that Spielberg made is like, there's a scene that's directly referencing uh, the or French Connection. Or stolen from. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, cultural relevance. Yeah. If we've got Alex on here saying that he enjoyed the movie, but it doesn't matter, then it clearly has no staying power. It's not a timeless film, but uh, I'd rewatch it. Yeah, like I, I would never, I'm I would old. say, I would say no if someone wanted to uh, rewatch it. Um, this is gonna sound so dismissive. It's like, does it hold up? I guess. Is it still culturally relevant? I, again, I'm gonna say no. It's gonna be three no's, I guess, from us here. Um, but it doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It's just like, yeah, there's, I think, other better interpretations of this. I will say that um, a few different things. Number one. There was a sequel made, The French Connection 2, which is also on Disney Plus if you want to watch it. Have it's you seen good. that, Dave? Yeah, it is yeah, not good. It is not, not good. It is so 
boring. <laughs> like I, I, I'm not even joking when there's like uh, a 15 minute scene of just people walking. It's like, oh my God, like just have something happen. I mentioned that there is a made for TV film called Popeye Doyle made in 1986. It stars Ed O'Neill. Uh, <laughs> the, the the old guy was on he, Modern Family or Al Bundy, if you're old enough to remember say, that show. Was he married with children? Uh, as of 2007, it was featured on the AFI's 100 Best Films of All Time list, coming in at number 93. Uh, and in 2005, the film was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. We do like to talk about, like, of the time, what were critics saying of the time? So again, I'm doing our two famous people, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael. Roger Ebert said, Director William Friedkin constructed The French Connection so surely that it left audiences stunned. And I don't mean that as a reviewer, a reviewer's cliche. It is literally true. In a sense, the whole movie is a chase. It opens with a shot of a French detective keeping the Continental under surveillance. And from then on, the smugglers and the law officers are endlessly circling and sniffing each other. It's just that the chase speeds up sometimes, as in the celebrated car train sequence. So he gave it a four out of four. He, he loved it. Pauline Kale is uh, the Dave of film criticism, uh, where she's usually negative. She's smarter than me, though. She's very yeah. academic. Yeah. She says, it's not what I want, not because it fails, it doesn't fail, but because of what it is. It is, I think, what we once feared mass entertainment might become, jolts for jocks. There's nothing in this movie that you enjoy thinking about afterward. Nothing especially clever, except the timing of the subway door and umbrella sequence. Every other effect of the movie, even the climactic car versus runaway elevated train chase, is achieved by noise, speed, and brutality. Hmm. It was the Marvel film of its time, as we keep saying <laughs> to anything I, that, mm -hmm. that, that references that. I was watching Alex's face while you were reading that, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's correct. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what Alex was saying the whole time, except politely. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, here, here's what it is. So that's what me, Dave, and Alex thought. Uh, but what do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse again, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, so let's get to the rating of the movie. Uh, I, I mean, you've been here before, Alex, so you know what I'm about to say. So I apologize, uh, you being a guest, because your rating does not matter. But if you were to give a rating to this movie out of five, uh, what do you think you would give it? You know what? I came in here thinking uh, three. Yeah. I was like, I, I'm just going to give it a three. But then getting some more context and, and like talking through it, I think I'm going to raise it to a 3.5. I think that's a great rating because that's the rating I gave it was a 3.5. <laughs> So I am right there with you. Dave, what would you give The French Connection? Yeah, I was higher. I mean, I, I, I'm also going to be influenced by our discussion. I mean, I, I love this film, um, mm -hmm. but it uh, is a little strenuous now with its overt racism. Yeah. <laughs> so that for me was a 0.5. And then, um, yeah, you're right. You guys are right. I mean, does it have cultural significance and is it still something that's, this is just a personal guilty pleasure or is this something a movie, like this is a movie people ought to watch. So 
Uh, I'll scale down to a four because okay. I'm still a lot more positive about the whole experience, I think. For sure. This is why we talk about things. So, you know, this emerging. is going to, yeah, this is going to be fun here, Dave. Just based on its average rating, that ties it with the last picture show. So, we have to discover if we want to put this above or below the last picture show. So, I'm. Uh, let me ask Alex. Alex, would you rather watch a couple of hard-nosed detectives trying to crack a drug smuggling ring, blowing up shit, or would you rather watch a meandering black and white thing where people just sit around a fucking town, smash bottles into each other's faces? I mean, I would, then, <laughs> I would say it's a, it's a poetical look at the dying town and the the, the last respite of of Americana. But you do what you well, well if 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 you put it that way, Kyle, because <laughs> I I'm. <laughs> I feel like I feel like the last picture show is something I might actually enjoy and be fascinated by. Uh, <laughs> dang it! Wow, now you've got me in a bind. Well, here's here's what I'm going to say. This is this is my pitch to you, Dave, and it's just gonna because <laughs> it's going to annoy you. Oh, no, sorry, it's going to annoy me. There's a lower rating for the last picture show because you give it a three, I gave it a four point five. Here, I gave the mm. French Connection 3.5, you gave it a 4. So, I think just on that level, we should probably put it above the last picture show uh, just because you're, you have a lower rating for last picture show. My hope is that this will get pushed down. But entering our list at the number two position is the French Connection. It um, did win an Oscar. It, it did, did win, win an Oscar. Oscar. Yeah, um, whatever so that I, means. The sequel is better. I guess it's time to see what we're going to be watching next week. Let me just uh, push this button here. Oh, I'm actually, I don't think I'm familiar with this. Uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday is what we're going to be watching next week, Dave. Is it a YouTube documentary? Uh, not in 71, it wouldn't be. <laughs> hmm. But is uh, it about maybe, the, maybe it inspired, the maybe it inspired you too. Who knows? Uh, is it about the czar again? Is that when he killed all the serfs? <laughs> well, that Sunday? was Bloody Sunday. So yeah, maybe. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, maybe it's, it's another Russian movie. Who knows? I guess we'll find out next week here, Dave. I've uh, never heard of it. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. If people wanted to stay in contact with you, how could they do so online? Yeah, the best way to find me is going to mechoradio.com. That's M-E-C-H-O radio.com. That's where I've got all of my podcasting stuff. And now my whole family's podcasting stuff, because I guess in the past year, They've all decided to get in on the fun. <laughs> they, so they've decided or they've me. been cajoled. <laughs> <laughs> they've been forced uh, to, yeah. There's a little bit of a mix. They're like, oh, I want to talk about this. Why don't you make a podcast about that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's mechoradio.com. And from there, you can continue to stalk me and find me everywhere else. I'll plug uh, Alex got a great new project, Broken Bulbs. I think it's great. You're doing a great job, Alex. I don't mean that in a condescending, patriarchal way. But what's, it's actually uh, what's Broken Bulbs about? So Broken Bulbs is a 10 to 15 minute, three times a week podcast where I sit down with creative people and entrepreneurs and ask them about their creative and professional failures. We get some pretty funny ones. We get some pretty sad ones. Just kind of depends on the day. It's a nice little hit of reality so that you don't think you're the only one out there failing. I feel all the time. So yeah, I exactly. know I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have this podcast, Dave. I mean, um, <laughs> Uh, Alex, is that is that a? I didn't. I just noticed this. Is that a wide brim hat you're wearing? It is Ooh, actually it's very nice. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Gonna throw that at me. 
I'm flipping you both off right now.